0: At 3 a.m. on the morning of May 16th, 2003, I was on our boat sailing through the Gulf of Maine, 50 nautical miles from Falmouth, on the last leg of what had been an 1,800-mile, two-week voyage from the British Virgin Islands to Maine. I know you're going, oh, no, we've got another nautical one again. Air and water temperatures were in the 40s, The wind was blowing from the northeast at 15 miles per hour, and we were tracking due north on starboard tack directly towards the entrance to Hussey Sound in Portland Harbor. Occasionally, a wave would slap against the hull, but conditions were mostly calm, particularly in comparison to the stormy conditions we had dealt with for 100 hours as we left Bermuda. It was so cold in the cockpit that we had stopped doing two-man watches, instead having only one man sitting on cushions in the companionway with just our heads sticking out. Only our navigation lights were showing as the boat tracked northward through the night under the control of the autopilot. The rest of the crew was asleep as I stood my watch, bundled up in foul-weather gear, wearing a harness and tether connecting me to the boat on the lookout for ships in the night. Then I saw a light over the horizon off to our northwest. My first thought was, here comes another ship. We had encountered one cruise ship, one freighter, and a tug pulling a barge on various nights during our trip from the BVI. The first thing you saw was a glow in the sky. Then the light would get brighter as the ship came over the horizon. Since the horizon is only 12 miles away, it was less than an hour from the time we saw a glow in the sky to when a ship would be upon us. We were uncertain as to whether the ships could see us. Did they even have lookouts posted? We tried hailing them on the radio, flashing a spotlight on our sails, and we got no response. We ended up taking evasive action every time, altering course to avoid being run down in the night. But this time was different. After 30 minutes, I noticed that this light off to our northwest hadn't changed in intensity or bearing. In fact, it now continued to stretch ahead of us and I finally figured out that the glow was the lights of the main coast just over the horizon. Home, we were almost home. So I sat there in the companionway, sailing through the night towards the horizon and the lights of home. I can't ever remember being as excited at the prospect of a homecoming as I was in that moment. I knew that today, Our trip would be over. Our families would meet us on the dock when we arrived. I knew that Jana and our daughters would be there. That she would make me my favorite dinner that night. And that tonight I would sleep in my own bed. I knew that it would be a wonderful homecoming. And it certainly was. It was a homecoming I will remember for the rest of my life. But as wonderful as that was, I know that an even sweeter homecoming is coming someday. I know that on that day when this physical life is done, I will see Jesus. And what a wonderful day that will be. It will be the sweetest homecoming I can imagine. You see, even now, Jesus prepares for our homecoming as we do his kingdom work on the seas of life. We see this principle in John 21, in the account of Jesus' appearance to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Let's set the scene. We are now in that period of time, 50 days, between Easter and Pentecost. Following Jesus' instructions, the disciples have traveled the 80 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee, They're waiting there to see him. They've returned to Galilee, back to where it all started, where Jesus' three-year ministry began, where he performed miracles, healed the sick, and taught thousands of people along the seashore. They have probably returned to their own homes. Now they're waiting for Jesus to appear, and a group of seven of them are together by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. According to church tradition, this appearance of Jesus to the disciples happened in Tagba, an area about two miles south of Capernaum along the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. There are two churches there. One is the Church of the Multiplication, where tradition holds that Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And the second is the Church of the Primacy of Peter marking the spot where Jesus made this appearance to the disciples. We went there and walked the rocky beach in January of 2012. We've got a natural, a natural amphitheater where Jesus could be on a boat and talk to the crowd on the hillside. So it's easy to see why so much of that early ministry took place there. When reading this story, the first thing you think is, haven't I seen this before? This fruitless overnight fishing trip, this command by Jesus to cast the nets resulting in a miraculous catch. Yes, we see a similar, a similar miracle in Luke chapter 5, as Jesus calls Simon along with James and John, telling them that from this time forward, they will be fishers of men, and first drawing the analogy between fishing and evangelism. Pastor and author Kent Hughes calls this story in John 21 a living parable and says the following, unknown to the disciples, the seven of them were a microcosm of the church toiling amidst a restless world. The fact that the church would have a great work among the Gentiles is seen in that the sea, which in scripture represents the nations, is in Galilee the area of the Gentiles. The tiny boat bearing the apostolic band portrays some abiding realities. A primary obligation of the church is fishing or evangelism. This specific idea was far from the apostles' minds as they fished that day. But clearly, that is what John wants us to see. Evangelism is to have a prominent place in the ministry of the church. In this passage, I see four aspects of this fishing expedition, four aspects of the church's voyage of evangelism. First aspect this morning, an empty net. John 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Seven of the disciples are sitting by the lake. They're waiting for Jesus, talking amongst themselves, probably discussing everything that has happened and what might happen next. Perhaps they thought he would most likely appear to them along the seashore in this area, an area where so much of his early ministry took place. Where will Jesus appear? How will he appear? What will he tell them to do? When a fish moves through water, it displaces the volume of the water it is occupying, causing the water to move. A school of fish moving through the water creates dark spots on the surface on a windless day, splashes, or even a small wave on a calm surface. This is called nervous water. And trained fishermen will look for this to know where to cast their nets. I have spent many days of my life on the water, surfing, sailing, fishing, cruising, and when I am near the water, my eyes are always there, looking. Is there enough wind for sailing? Are there any waves? Are there any fish out there? What is that guy doing on his boat? In the summer of 2008, we held an elder retreat at our cottage in West Bath. Jana and I had spent the night there to prepare for the meeting while Pastor Dave and the rest of the elders were meeting at church at 9 a.m. to drive up together. It was a beautiful, sunny morning on the New Meadows River, and there was nervous water everywhere. There were schools of fish all over the river, including right beside our dock. Jana was preparing lunch for the elders. I was making final preparations. But my eyes kept going back to the water. Fish were everywhere, and they seemed to mock me, splashing on the surface. Finally, only 30 minutes before the elders were due to arrive, I blurted out, I am going fishing. As I headed out the door to our boat, Jana has heard me say those exact words, the exact same words that Peter uses, more times than I can even count, and of course, That morning, I caught nothing. Some commentators have written that the seemingly spur-of-the-moment fishing trip was due to Peter's inability to sit still, his need for action. But I think there's a different explanation. I think that Peter loved fishing. I think Peter was seeing lots of nervous water. But I also think he was being tempted to resume his prior life. There's no doubt that fishing is a hard and physically demanding lifestyle. But Peter had been making his life as a fisherman before answering Jesus' call. Peter and his brother owned a fishing boat. We know this from Matthew chapter 4. Zebedee and his son James and John owned a fishing business. They had a bigger boat. And they even had servants, as shown in Mark one twenty. So they had prospered in their lives as fishermen. And evidently, Peter still has his boat. Notice he says, I am going fishing. He doesn't say, hey, John, can I borrow your boat so I can go fishing? He has been at his home in Capernaum. He is sitting beside the lake where he has made his living as a fisherman for his adult life. All of those things, the fish, the water, his home, They're like a siren call, pulling him back to his prior life, to that past life. And he doesn't know what Jesus is going to tell them to do next. Notice that in verse 15, sitting in front of the fire and the fish, Jesus asks him, Do you love me more than these? While waiting for Jesus to appear, Peter has let his love for fishing in his past life spill out into this spur of the moment overnight fishing trip. And he has been corrected. His net is empty. Are we being pulled back to that past comfortable life in the church? When the pandemic started, we canceled virtually all church uh, activities and ministries. Things that we have done for 40 or 50 years in this church. We miss those things those comfortable aspects of church life. As the pandemic winds down, will we immediately go straight back to what we've done before? Is that what God wants? Or should we be praying for his direction and leading in our ministries, looking for his will and what should be done, and how we re-engage in ministry and evangelism? The result of that night's fishing and empty net is a reminder from the Lord, as he tells us in John fifteen five. That apart from me, you can do nothing. That brings us to our second aspect this morning, owning our failure. Verses 4 and 5. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. No. It's now dawn, and the boat with the disciples is about 100 yards from shore as Jesus appears. The disciples have been fishing all night and have caught nothing. They have probably taken turns casting the net through the night, and now they're exhausted. Well, they're probably all exhausted, but Peter. It's kind of interesting to note that after the whole night's worth of fishing, the one who's still working is Peter, stripped down, ready for action. The rest of them are probably saying, why did I come on this trip with Peter? Then a voice calls out from shore. The disciples don't know that it is Jesus, either because they don't recognize him or because they are looking west towards the shore into the gloom. Jesus already knows the answer to the question, so he is just testing them. What would Jesus have done if the disciples had lied when he asked them whether they had caught any fish? Would he have just disappeared? Perhaps he would have walked on the water, straight out to the boat. The disciples, to their credit, answered Jesus truthfully. Fishermen are notorious for lying about their catch, or where they caught it, or what bait was used. Last summer, I was fishing directly in front of a dock on North Gorham Pond when I caught a very nice three-pound bass. There was a couple sitting on a dock watching me as I reeled it in. It's always nice to have an audience when you catch a big fish. After I let it go, the lady on the dock asked what lure I had caught it on. And as as I started to answer her that I had caught the fish on a three-inch Texas rigged cinco worm in the green pumpkin magic color, The man said to her, don't ask him that. A fisherman will always lie when you ask him what lure he is using. He was a little shocked that I told her exactly what I was using. He didn't expect me to answer truthfully. So let's talk about our pastor for a moment. He's not here this morning, so we can talk about him. Fly fishing for trout is very hard. And I know that because I'm not very good at it. It's hard for everyone. It can be very frustrating for everyone, in particular for beginners. And when you're on a river with a bunch of people and someone is catching fish and another person is not, you can see the frustration build. I have literally seen Mark Labaz, our pastor, stand beside someone and pull in fish after fish while this poor person is getting frustrated and more frustrated and more frustrated until they finally blurt out, what fly are you using? And that's when Pastor Mark turns the tables and does the unexpected. I have seen him do it. People don't really say that and expect an answer. They definitely do not expect what Pastor Mark does to happen. He walks right over. He explains what he's doing. He will open his fly box and give them a fly. And I think they're just dumbfounded. They don't know how, re- how they're going to react. They, they're just speechless. I've witnessed him doing this. And he uses it as an opportunity to connect. He uses it as an opportunity to introduce himself. He uses it as an opportunity to get to know someone. He uses it as an opportunity for evangelism. He uses it to fish for men. All right, now I need some water and then we'll get back to the sermon. But enough about Pastor Mark, but I've seen him do that. It is truly wonderful to watch him engage with somebody like that on the river. And there, people are just stunned when it happens. Owning our failures is hard. In 1990, I became involved in a bitter disagreement with a colleague and friend at work. I was a manager in research and development at National Semiconductor in South Portland. I was 35 years old. I had a project that was seriously behind schedule. I was failing. Unfortunately, at that age, I was still afflicted with that very common problem of blame shifting. For those people with teenagers, you probably know what I'm talking about when I mention blame shifting. There were problems, but they weren't my fault. I've got one. I just It's just a short one. There were problems, but they weren't my fault. My colleague recognized my blame shifting, and he called me out on it. We ended up in an email war that lasted for several weeks until our boss finally put an end to it. In time, I realized that he was right, and I changed. From that point on, I owned my failures and learned from them. How do you learn anything if you won't even admit that you've failed? Sometimes, admitting that what you're doing is a complete failure is the key to changing direction and fixing it. I dug deeper, worked harder, got more creative, took more risks. I had plenty of both spectacular successes and failures, in the rest of my career, and when I failed, I owned it and accepted responsibility. Looking back on it, that change in behavior was one of the most important, formative events in my career. Years later, I apologized to my friend and I thanked him for what he had done. Owning our failures is important in ministry too. If we never failed in ministry, How would we ever learn to be truly dependent on God? We learn true dependence on God in our brokenness, in our failures. Malcolm Muggeridge said this about failure. Christianity, from Golgotha onwards, has been the sanctification of failure. Peter, the great rock, rose from the rock heap of failure. Our failures bring us face to face with the weaknesses and inadequacies that lie within, so that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. Author Kent Hughes puts it this way, it is in the breaking of these clay vessels our failures that the riches of God are exposed for us for all to see. It is primarily our failures that create in us a poverty of spirit and thus make us fit receptacles for the blessings of the kingdom of God. One of the great faults of the church and many Christian organizations is saying souls are saved when they are not, asserting our effectiveness when we are ineffective, making claims for a ministry when we should be lamenting its failure, and loudly proclaiming our effect on the world when the world does not even know we exist. The creative processes of the Holy Spirit, God's power in our lives, become fully operable when we, when, when we admit exactly where we are, owning our successes and our failures. Third aspect this morning, a full net. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish." In 2010, my brothers and I went fishing for redfish in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Early on the first morning, our guide took us far up into the marsh looking for shrimp. Live shrimp are like redfish candy. When he finally found a small school of shrimp, he reached into a locker, pulled out a cast net, and began casting the net to catch some shrimp for bait. That was the first and only time I have ever seen someone cast a net in that fashion. The guide was frustrated, he was working hard, and on most of his casts, he caught nothing, even though he was casting at a school of shrimp directly in front of the boat in about two feet of water. He asked if I wanted to try my hand at it, but after watching him for a few minutes, I said, no, 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 I don't wanna do that. In the end, it was a lot of work and time for just a few shrimp. On my next trip, when the guide asked whether I wanted to use live shrimp, I told him yes, and we went to a bait store and bought 10 pounds. The disciples have fished all night and have caught nothing. Now it is dawn, and with the added light, if there was nervous water anywhere, Peter would see it. The cast net only catches fish within a few feet of the surface, so Peter must have been an expert in spotting schools of fish. Even so, there doesn't seem to be any resistance when the distant voice tells them to cast on the other side of the boat. Do you think the disciples had a premonition when the voice from shore told them where to cast the net? You would certainly think so. Don't you love Peter's reaction when they feel the net full of fish and John says, it is the Lord. He grabs some clothes, putting something on, and throwing himself into the water to swim the 100 yards to shore. He wants to see Jesus, and he doesn't care about the fish. In his joy, he leaves the rest of the disciples to struggle into shore with a load of fish. We can fish all night. We can try every approach, program, and ministry we can possibly think of. But the message of the full net is that God gives the growth. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The American missionary Adoniram Judson arrived in Burma or Myanmar in 1812 and died there 38 years later in 1850. During that time, he suffered much for the cause of the gospel. He was imprisoned, tortured, and kept in shackles. But his faith sustained him, and he threw himself into the tasks to which he believed God had called him. He worked feverishly on his translation of the New Testament and the Old Testament into the Burmese language. And he finished the Old Testament in 1834. When Judson died in 1850, Statistics are unclear, but there were only somewhere between 12 and 25 professing Christians in the country, and there were no churches to speak of. At the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language, Paul Borthwick was in Burma addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work. Just before he got up to speak, he noticed in small print on the first page of the Burmese Bible the words, translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Berthwick turned to his interpreter, a Burmese man named Matthew, and asked him, Matthew, what do you know of this man? Matthew began to weep as he said, we know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adoniram uh, Judson. In a few years, we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the founding of Galilee Baptist Church, a church with a long legacy of outreach, a long legacy of faithfully sending, supporting, and giving to missionaries and mission agencies. As part of the revisioning process we did in the fall of 2016, I went back and dug through old church annual reports, in particular looking at missions giving. In the close to 50 years since this church was founded, we have given almost $1.5 million to missions, a large sum of money from a little church. The truth is, we will never know this side of heaven, how God has used this, work, uh, this church to save lives, to change lives, to save souls, to grow his kingdom. But someday, someday, when we're in heaven, we're going to get to find out about that. Someday, I want to see how God has used this church. The message of the full net is clear. God grants the increase. Fourth aspect this morning, receiving our reward. Verses 9 through 14. So when they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and brought, uh, drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We first saw the coast of Cape Elizabeth at 10 a.m. on the morning of May 16th, 2003, and entered Portland Harbor at noon. As we motored up to the Portland Yacht Club dock at 1 p.m., I could see a crowd of people waiting for us on the dock. I could see Jana and our girls waiting for me. The trip was over. After the uh, preparation, the stress, the steepless nights, the stormy weather, the danger. The work was finished, and the voyage was over. It was a wonderful, sweet homecoming. This scene on the beach in Galilee is a picture of our homecoming, the homecoming of the church, the homecoming of those believers who have performed his kingdom work in this life. And it is a beautiful scene, the rising sun, the beach, The disciples rowing the last few yards to shore with their catch. The campfire. Jesus preparing a meal for the disciples. Notice that Jesus even uses some of the fish that they have just caught in the meal, although he didn't need to. He cares about what we have accomplished. Peter is undoubtedly standing there sopping wet with a grin on his face, and the rest of the disciples are too shy to talk. Who will you be like? when you see Jesus for the first time. Will you be like Peter, throwing yourself into the water and swimming to shore in your joy to see him? Or will you be like the other disciples, faithfully rowing those last few yards to shore to complete your work and your voyage? When William Montague Dyke was 10 years old, he was blind in an accident. Despite his disability, he graduated from a university in England with high honors. And while he was there, he fell in love with and became engaged to the daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer. Not long before the wedding, William had eye surgery in the hope that the operation would restore his eyesight. If the operation failed, he would be blind for the rest of his life. After the surgery, William insisted on keeping the bandages on his eyes until his wedding day. If the operation was successful, he wanted the first person he saw to be his new bride. The wedding day arrived. With many guests, including British royalty and government officials there to hear the exchange of vows. William, his eyes still covered in bandages, was accompanied by his father and the doctor who had performed the surgery. The organ trumpeted the wedding march, and the bride slowly walked down the aisle. When she arrived, the surgeon took a pair of scissors and cut away the bandages from William's eyes. Tension filled the room. The congregation held their breath as they waited to see if William could see the woman standing in front of him. As he stood face to face, with his bride-to-be for the first time, William's words echoed throughout the cathedral. You are even more beautiful than I ever imagined. One day, you and I will stand face-to-face with Jesus. We will see his face for the first time, and his glory will be more than we have ever imagined in this life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. One day this physical life will be done, and on that day we will receive our reward. We will see the face of our Savior, the face of our High Priest, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and Omega, the light of the world. We will see the face of Jesus, and we will know God. Are you on a voyage into the darkness or into the light? Dylan Thomas was a famous Welsh poet, self-described as roisterous, drunk, and doomed who died of alcohol poisoning in 1953 in New York at the age of 39. He drank 20 straight shots of whiskey, bragged that he had just set his own personal record, and then he went into a coma and died a few days later. His father, David John Thomas, was an avowed atheist and a lifelong opponent of all religions, either Christianity or paganism. Regularly cursing God for the damp Welsh weather. Dylan Thomas wrote the poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, in 1947 to his father as he lay ill. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Rage against the dying of the light. Is that it? Is that all thinking about the end of life? I find in those words complete desolation, complete sadness. To be an atheist at the end of this physical life is closing your eyes for the final time and plunging into the darkness of the abyss. It is a life without hope, a life without meaning. It is heartbreaking, quite frankly. It is soul-crushing. It is a voyage into the darkness. What do you see when you close your eyes and think about the end of this physical life? I have imagined it in this way for many years now, longer than I can remember. I am on a voyage, my eyes, are on the horizon. And the horizon is the end of this physical life. It is often the distance, but it is coming closer. And there is a light on that horizon. Week after week, month after month, year after year, the light grows brighter. Jesus is there. Home is there. And even as the light dims on this physical life, that light grows brighter. On that day when it is over, I will be home. I will see Jesus. And what a wonderful homecoming that will be. It is a voyage towards the light. In the book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, Author Larry Taunton writes about his friendship with the noted atheist Christopher Hitchens and relates his experience driving through the Shenandoah with him while reading from the King James Version of the Gospel of John. This is what he writes in the last chapter of the book, after Christopher Hitchens has died from throat cancer after decades of smoking. So he's looking back and he's remembering this experience driving through the Shenandoah with Christopher Hitchens. My mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. As we crest one of these rolling mountains, we see unfolding before us a valley of sublime beauty. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Reaching the 25th and 26th verses, his face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too. Christopher turns to Larry and asks, Do you believest thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do. But you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believest thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As of searching for a clever riposte, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Are you going to live forever? Brothers and sister, eternal life hinges on your answer to the question Jesus asks Mary in John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Mary's answer in verse 27 She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. Confronted by the claims of Jesus of Nazareth, every single one of us has to answer that question with eternity in the balance. Do you believe this? Believest thou this? Jesus waits for our answer. He waits for your answer, yes or no. I pray that your answer is the same as Mary's this morning. Yes, Lord, I believe. If you're unsure of your answer this morning, don't tarry. Don't wait. Eternity hangs in the balance. Talk to me. Talk to an elder after the service. Talk to Pastor Mark. Please, don't wait. Are you on a voyage into the darkness or into the light? Lord, we thank you for Jesus this morning, the sacrifice that he made for us, his cleansing blood, saving us from our own unrighteousness. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the light of the world. We believe that this morning. We believe that we will have eternal life through him, And Father, we look forward to that glorious day when we see him face to face. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. What a day that will be. Father, help us always to keep our eyes on the horizon and the light, even as we struggle through the pain, sorrow, and difficulties of this everyday life. Use these things always to point us back to you to bring us closer to you and strengthen our faith in our walk with you. Amen.